Oh God, I pray that you would give us grace this morning to grow. I pray that we would receive your word and that it would build us up, that we might trust you more, that we might grow in Christ-likeness, that we might learn how we can live in a way that would bring you honor and glory. God, please be with me. Help me to preach faithfully. God, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in this passage, uh, as, I, as I've said already, Paul begins by charging the Corinthians with spiritual immaturity. And what we're going to see are four things. Uh, first, in verses 1 through 4, uh, we'll see the evidence or the proof of the Corinthians' spiritual immaturity. Then, secondly, in verses 5 through 9, uh, we're going to see the root of their spiritual immaturity, the underlying cause or problem that's leading to this perpetual immaturity. Then in verses 10 through 17, we're going to be see something of the fruits of this immaturity and how it works itself out in the ministry of the church. And then finally, in verses 18 through 23, we're going to see the remedy for this spiritual immaturity, what they need to do to begin to grow as they ought. So first, verses 1-4, through four, the evidence of the Corinthians' immaturity. Uh, Paul begins by saying, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now it's important to note, first of all, that the Corinthians um, seem very clearly to be esteeming themselves um, as mature. Uh, so this would have been quite a shock to them. This would have been quite a stinging uh, reply from Paul. Um, we see that the Corinthians had become proud of what they knew. They, they are you know, aligning themselves behind whatever preacher they think is you know, the most sophisticated, the most eloquent, the most impressive. And in fact, as they're doing that, they are arguing about it. So if you go back to chapter 1, uh, verses 10 through 12, the, the very beginning of this section, Paul talks about how he's heard about divisions among them. Um, how those from Chloe's people um, have reported this to Paul. And, and Paul says, you know, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Um, and Paul is dealing with this issue of division in the church from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 4. Uh, so, so we've been thinking about this issue, and, and of course behind that is the Corinthians esteem themselves as mature. Uh, from elsewhere in the book, we, we see that there was a lot of um, even miraculous activity. There were spiritual gifts in the church. And so it seems the Corinthians, you know, they, they wanted the more impressive gifts because they saw that as a mark of spiritual maturity. They thought, I must be a really mature Christian because, you know, I can uh, speak in tongues, you know, or, or I can prophesy, or I can interpret tongues, or uh, healings are done through me. These are signs that I am a really mature Christian. And in fact, they, they even seem to think, well, maybe we've become more mature than Paul. You know, many of them are becoming critical of Paul because he seems so unsophisticated, so sort of simple-minded. And so they have kind of turned away from him, and that's part of the division that's going on. 
And, and so Paul is addressing that, and strikingly, he begins here by saying, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. You know, not only are you not mature, you are infants. You're such infants, Paul says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. You know, Paul seems to be saying that when he was among them, he, he perceived this immaturity. And so he had to keep reiterating the elementary truths of the gospel. He had to feed them milk because they just weren't ready for what Paul understood to be spiritual food, for sort of a deeper understanding of the gospel, a deeper understanding of how God has revealed the mystery of Christ in his word. And Paul felt like they aren't ready for that. I had to feed you milk and not solid food. Um, Now, interestingly, Paul also equates their immaturity their spiritual infancy with being of the flesh. Notice how he uses these synonymously. He says, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. So, so what does Paul mean by you are of the flesh? I couldn't address you as spiritual people. Well, I think when Paul speaks of being of the flesh, he's speaking of who they are and who we are outside of Christ. Remember how Jesus speaks in the same way uh, when he's with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And he, he tells Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. You know, don't be surprised that I say to you, you must be born again. Outside of Christ, we're, we're, we're born of the flesh. We're in the flesh. We're cut off from God. It's our sinful self. But then, God, by His grace, through the Holy Spirit, causes us to be born again, and we become new people in Christ. We become spiritual people. We've been renewed. And of course, as Christians, we are to grow by learning to walk in the Spirit. By learning to live as who we now are in Christ, as spiritual people who've been redeemed. And yet Paul tells the Corinthians, but you're still of the flesh. You're living as as if you were outside of Christ. You're living as if who you used to be is still true of who you are now. You're not living in light of who you are. And that shows this deep immaturity. Because the Christian life is supposed to be about learning to live in light of who you now are in Christ. So, What then is the evidence of this? What does Paul point to to say, here's why I know you're immature and you're living of the flesh? Well, the key is in verse 3. He says, for, here's the reason, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? He puts his finger on the jealousy and the strife that's among them. And he says, if that's true, if there is jealousy and strife just being harbored in the the church, I know you're not mature. I know you are of the flesh. And, And that's a striking thing. It didn't matter how much the Corinthians knew how theologically informed they were. It didn't matter how much, you know, what spiritual gifts they had. It didn't matter how actively they were serving the church. It didn't matter how much they were evangelizing and how much else they were doing. 
Paul says, if there's jealousy and there's strife, then you're not mature. That's a striking thing. You know, it's kind of like if, you know, <clears throat> you know, if someone has cancer, right? There's, there's all sorts of symptoms and, and sort of signs that could be warning signs and concerns and reasons you might think they do or you might think they don't. But at the end of the day, if the biopsy comes back and says they got cancer, you know, you may not have any of the symptoms and yet you say, but you got cancer. And Paul in the same way, he's like, it doesn't matter, all these other things are secondary if, if I see the jealousy and the strife. I know you're not mature as you're supposed to be. He says, for when one says, verse 4, I follow Paul and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? You know, when this jealousy and strife is circulating as one person is saying, I'm going to follow this minister and another person says, I'm going to follow that minister and you're arguing about it and there's strife in the church. That is a sign, an unmistakable sign of spiritual immaturity. And when there's jealousy over that kind of thing. In other words, what Paul's point here is very clear. Where jealousy and strife abound, spiritual maturity is lacking. And brethren, the, the same is true for us. Um, if you or I harbor jealousy in our hearts, or if strife characterizes our relationships, then we lack spiritual maturity. This is fundamental to, to growing up into Christ-likeness. You know, so we, we can't excuse those things by saying, but I'm, you know, I serve the church a lot, or, or but I know a lot of theology, or but I have this spiritual gift or that. that those things don't make up for this fundamental issue. If, if jealousy is, is harbored in our hearts and strife is in our relationships, we're not like Christ as we should be. Uh, we, we are still in our spiritual infancy, so to speak. Um, and, and just think about this. I mean, growing in, Christ, uh, growing in spiritual maturity is all about growing in Christ-likeness. And Christ is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who lovingly and humbly died for us to reconcile us to God. And so spiritual maturity is necessarily about being a peacemaker, not a strife causer, being a reconciler, being a lover of even enemies, and one who selflessly sacrifices for others. Yeah, but, but jealousy is, is just the opposite. I mean, jealousy leads us to actually hate people because good is happening to them. I mean, strife causes us, instead of making reconciliation and peace, to, to create conflict. And so, growing in spiritual maturity necessarily means uh, growing to, to put jealousy to death in our heart. Growing to, to put the, the kind of issues that lead to strife to death in our hearts so that we can be more like Christ. And that's the very issue. In, in Corinth, for whatever else is going on, this is an issue. And Paul is saying to them, the evidence is clear. You are not mature in Christ as you should be. You may think you are, but you are not. So that's the evidence of the Corinthians' spiritual immaturity. Well, let's look next, point number two, at the root of their immaturity. What is it, what underlying cause was leading to this jealousy and strife and boasting 
in men. Well, look with me at verses 5 through 9. Paul continues, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Now notice what Paul does here. He's seeking to turn the attention of the Corinthians away from man and onto God. I mean, the the first thing he's saying is, you've overestimated the role of men. You're so focused on Paul and Apollos and great preachers, but you've underappreciated the role of God. He's saying, stop boasting in man as if man could create spiritual growth or should be credited for it, because it's God alone who gives it. You know, he, he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. He says, I planted. I'm, I'm like the one that just you know, plants the seed. And then Apollos comes along and he's the one that waters the seed. But God's the one who makes it grow. God's the one who deserves the credit. God is the sovereign Lord of salvation. The sovereign Lord of all. He says, verse 7, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And friends, the root of the Corinthians' immaturity is that they fail to reckon with the sovereignty of God. They've lost sight of the fact that He's God and we're not. That God gives the growth. That God is the one who sends out the planter and the waterer. That God's the one who gifts everyone who has whatever gift they had. And then apart from Him, we can do nothing. That's why it's so foolish that the Corinthians would be boasting in men, as if having the right preacher was the key. They've, they've taken their eyes off of God. They've lost sight of God's sovereignty. Now, another thing to notice about what Paul says here, he's saying, stop dividing over the very things that God is using harmoniously for your good. I mean, you go to verse 4, and we see that, that they're dividing over Paul and Apollos. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. And then Paul says, verse 7, um, or verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one. I mean, just think about the way that here they are arguing over, you know, Paul's the better preacher. We need Apollos. And, and they're making that a reason for conflict. And Paul says, you know, if you understood the sovereignty of God, you would see that I'm the planter and Apollos is the waterer and God is the one who's using us both together for your good. I mean, how ironic that they are dividing over the very things that God is using as the instruments to bless them. I mean, this is as ridiculous as, you know, one plant saying, oh, I'm... I'm all for the farmer that planted me and the other plant, no, no, it's about the planter that waters me. And both plants are just ignorant that they both depend on both. Um, You see, what's going on is they have become so focused on the human instruments that they're missing the divine reality. They're, They're not seeing God's invisible hand behind it all. Uh, To to try to illustrate this further, um, 
Imagine for a moment the difference between a young child and an adult uh, watching a movie together. And let's say it's an action movie. Um, well, the, the, the child watches the movie and, and he's um, you know, very amazed when he, he, he sees this actor doing these amazing stunts. You know, and he's just impressed. How does this actor, how can he fly through the air and do these flips and do this amazing thing, right? That, that's how he's seeing it. Well, the adult watching the movie um, may also be amazed, but for a completely different reason. The adult is not so amazed by the actor, but the, the adult might be amazed, like, how did that stunt double pull this off? And how did the engineers get the guide wire? And how did the videographer capture the footage? And you see, the adult is aware that there's a, there's a whole other layer going on behind the scenes. And, and that's what they see and they're impressed by and they're thinking about. And, and I would suggest that the spiritually mature Christian looks at reality more like that. They're, they're not just focused on the human instrument. They're not so taken and impressed by what the human instrument is doing. But they see that there is a sovereign God behind the scenes. There is a God using Paul to plant, Apollos to water, but it's God who's giving the growth. That, that there is this invisible hand of God that, he, that the mature Christian sees by faith and recognizes that God is behind it all. That God is the one who is in control. That God is the one who is sovereignly bringing some to salvation. Who it, who God is the one who really owns this field of the church and is giving the growth according to His will. And I think that if that's true, it's going to totally change our perspective. Right? And for example, here the Corinthians are sort of judging Paul. Is, is he doing enough for us? Is Paul good enough? Or do we need Apollos? Or do we need some other minister? But if we see that no God is sovereign, how that shifts us from, from being so quick to want to judge what others are doing or what they can do for us, and, and how instead it shifts our focus onto being grateful for how God uses many different ministers, many different means, how God is the one who is working these things together for our good, how God has blessed us so richly, how God is in control. It doesn't, it, you know, it's not that, well, this minister, he lacks some you know, talent and ability and therefore we're never going to see any converts and it's all, no, 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 God is in control. And we are simply to trust Him and be faithful to Him. And God can, you know, He, he can raise up a, a rock to praise His name. He can use whatever means He wants because He's the sovereign God. And friends, that's what the Corinthians have taken their eyes off. That, that's the root that's really behind this, that's led to all of this jealousy and strife and boasting in men. They failed to really reckon with and believe the sovereignty of God. Well, let's look thirdly at the fruit of this spiritual immaturity. The fruit of not really trusting God's sovereignty, and specifically the fruit in the way that that then carries over in how the Corinthians are thinking about ministry in the church. So look with me at verses 10 through 17. Paul continues, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, 
each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, first of all, in these verses, Paul shifts the metaphor from speaking of the Corinthian church uh, as a field to a building. And Paul says that he is like the master builder who laid the foundation. You know, Paul showed up in Corinth, he preached the gospel, and some believed. And the church was established, and it was established on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Paul preached the true gospel. Christ is the foundation, and no other foundation can be laid other than that which is laid, which is Christ. And then Paul says that others are now building upon that foundation. And so by this, I think he means other ministers, such as Apollos and and others in Corinth have come along. And even as Paul has left, there's others who have come and continue to preach, continue to build the church up through their ministry. And this especially includes preachers, but I think to some degree it includes all of the Corinthians because every member of the church is involved in evangelism and discipleship and is part of this process of building up the church on the foundation of Christ. But then Paul says that different kinds of materials are being used. And that people need to take heed how they build because there's these different materials you could build with. And so there's um, imperishable materials such as gold, silver, and precious stones. And then there's perishable materials such as wood, hay, and straw. And so you need to be careful what kind of materials you build with because, Paul says, that the day is coming. And by this he means the day of judgment when each one's work will be tested and revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work it is. So, you know, if you've built with imperishable materials such as gold and silver and precious stones, the fire will come and and your work will stand. And that person, Paul says, will receive a reward. But on the other hand, if you built with perishable materials like wood, hay, and straw, the fire comes and and your work burns up. And Paul says he will be saved, uh, but his work will be lost. And he will be saved as only through fire. Uh, Now I want to make a few clarifying observations about this metaphor that Paul uses. Um, First of all, The reward Paul is describing here is not the reward of salvation itself. As I just commented in verses 14 and 15, Paul says if if, um, the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I think this might be the clearest passage in the New Testament that clarifies that the reward here is something in addition to salvation itself. It's possible to, you yourself can be saved and yet suffer some kind of loss. Um, Now we could spend a long time sort of trying to speculate what exactly are heavenly rewards. You know, what what would these rewards be in addition to the, the gift of salvation itself? 
Um, but at the end of the day, I, I think um, we don't have to know exactly what the reward is to know that it's a reward that comes from God, and therefore it is going to be good. I mean, this is something we should seek. I mean, this is clearly saying if, if we are faithful in the work of ministry, in the, in the life of the church, that God will reward us in some way. And that's a wonderful motivation to, to seek that reward, to strive to be faithful, to know that whatever you do, whatever service you render, it's not in vain. It will be rewarded. And on the other hand, there will be those who do work and serve in the church, and yet they do it in a way that, that the resulting materials burn away. It doesn't last. And their reward will be lost. Now a second clarification. The contrast here is not primarily between the person who is living for eternal things versus the person who's living for worldly things. Um, because the, the builders are all trying to build up the church. You know, th- this seems to be people who are thinking about eternity. They're, they're thinking about this future reward. They're, they're trying to, you know, do evangelism and discipleship and serve God. The problem is that some builders are using the wrong materials and therefore their works burn in the end. Um, So the point here isn't merely serve Jesus instead of the world. It's contrasting two different ways of serving Jesus. It's saying do the work of ministry in the right kind of way so that your work lasts. Now a third clarification Strikingly, all the construction taking place here is actually on the foundation of Christ. It says in verses 11 and 12, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. Um, So... Paul isn't here talking about establishing a church on a false gospel. You know, trying to build on some totally different foundation. Um, he seems to be saying that it's possible to build on the right foundation with the wrong materials. And so if the foundation is Christ, I think the materials relate to the kind of methods we use in ministry. Uh, in other words, I think some methods lead to results in evangelism and discipleship that will last. The gold, silver, and precious stones. And then other methods uh, lead to results in evangelism and discipleship that won't. They may look great in the short term, but they don't last for eternity. Uh, So in other words, what, what this passage is basically teaching us is that no matter how big our church grows, no matter how outwardly impressive our ministry may be, no matter how many programs we have or how much activity is taking place, it's the quality of the work that counts. And that's what will be tested on the last day. And I think Paul is is bringing this up for the Corinthians because he sees a link between their spiritual immaturity and the way, their approach to ministry. He, He sees spiritual maturity that's rooted in this failure to really understand the sovereignty of God. And he's concerned about the way that's going to carry over into their approach in ministry. 
in evangelism, in discipleship. You know, think about how this is already working itself out. You know, what, what are the Corinthians doing? They're, they're turning to the ministers, you know, the, the preachers that are the most eloquent, that are the most sophisticated, that are the most impressive. Because they're thinking, wow, these guys are really going to impress people and then people are going to want to come to our church. Then our church is going to grow and we are going to be big and we are going to be impressive and, and we're going to win the world through the power of rhetoric and eloquence and wisdom. And Paul is saying, beware. That may build you a big church. But is that going to be a church built out of gold, silver, and precious stones? Or is that going to be a church built out of wood, hay, and straw? I think that is Paul's concern. That's the fruit of this spiritual immaturity. And brothers and sisters, I, I think this is something that we have seen in many other occasions in history. Um, I, I want to bring up uh, today the example of uh, Charles Finney. Uh, he was one of the most... Um, influential preachers in American history. He was a leading figure uh, during the Second Great Awakening from the early to mid-1800s. And he was a zealous and passionate evangelist uh, who was involved in many revivals and who saw tremendous outward results from his preaching. However, he was controversial because he was a strong advocate of what they called these new measures, uh, which were aimed at promoting conversions and revivals. Uh, so for example, he promoted something called the anxious bench, uh, whereas he preached those under conviction of sin could come forward into a special place and, and they could receive special care and prayer until they found peace. Um, he promoted things like praying publicly by name for unbelievers, even in, you know, when they were there in the service, kind of, kind of calling them out in front of everybody. We're all praying for you to be converted. It was sort of creating this this emotional pressure to convert. Um, And he held these large protracted camp meetings where vast numbers of people would come and they would have preaching all day and praying all night and people would be gathered and it was this this big event um, that that generated tremendous excitement and emotional fervor. And behind all of that was a very strong emphasis on human willpower and the idea that the right kind of preaching and the right use of methods could cause people to make the right decision and even generate revival. And if you could just get people to make the decision to walk the aisle, to pray the prayer, to sort of come to Jesus, if you could just kind of coerce them into it, well, then they'd be saved and that's what you need to do. Um, In one sermon, Finney said, some persons associate God's sovereignty with conversion in a way that they associate it with nothing else. Uh, So, for example, um, in the same way that that parents can sort of train their young children to be polite, uh, well, Finney thought, you know, a minister can employ the right evangelistic methods to virtually guarantee conversions. Um, In fact, Finney also said that with the addition of believing prayer, pious parents... Uh, can render the salvation of their children certain. And he said, if Christians would only give themselves to the task of evangelism, they could convert the world and bring on the millennium in three months. Right? If, if we just did the right things, if we just used the right methods, we could, there, there would be this huge revival that would be 
created. Now, as Finney was gaining popularity, some older ministers tried to warn him of some of the dangers they saw in these new methods. But he rejected all such advice. He called them enemies of revival and claimed that the results he was seeing validated his methods. You know, he's like, look, if this isn't right, well, why are all these people coming to faith? Look, look at how the church is being built up. That, that justifies what I'm doing. But in later years, it seems that even Finney himself came to realize something of the lack of quality in his results. In 1845, he noted a great falling off and decline in revivals. And in 1856, he was preaching on the training of children when he suddenly stopped and exclaimed, Brethren, why am I trying to instruct you on the subject of training your children in the fear of God when I do not know that a single one of my children gives evidence of having been converted? And it seems that all six of Finney's own children uh, had drifted from the faith of the, the man who had said a pious parent can render the salvation of his children certain. And you see, I think Finney at the end of the day failed to realize that one can plant and one can water, but God alone gives the growth. It's not in man's power to create evangelistic fruit. He thought too little of the sovereignty of God and too much of the ingenuity of man. And though the outward results initially looked great and, and people were baptized in droves, it turned out that the grand structure he built was mostly wood, hay, and straw. And so however sincere Finney may have been, um, I, I fear that, that much of his heavenly reward was lost. And so, brothers and sisters, you know, what about us? I mean, in, with what will we build? Um, as we strive to see the church built up, how will we go about that? Uh, you know, like Finney, will we, will we think if we just emotionally press people enough, they'll, they'll make the right decision? Uh, like the Corinthians, will we think if we just impress people with the right kind of preaching and the right rhetoric and eloquence, well, then they'll all be converted. You know, like uh, Rick Warren, a pastor in California at this time, uh, do we think, well, if I make a survey and, you know, find out the kind of music people like and the kind of dress they like and when the service needs to be and how long they like the sermon to be. And, and then I sort of tailor the service to appeal to the people in the community. That's the way to see the church grow. Or like there's a guy, Stephen Furtick, a pastor in North Carolina, you know, who um, notoriously, you know, planted people in the audience so when they made the altar call, people would come forward and that would make other people want to come forward to be baptized. I mean, do, do we come up with things like that thinking, well, you know, I can use these means to somehow inspire people to, to come to Christ? Or will we take to heart what Paul says here? Each one's work will be revealed by fire, for the day will disclose it. And as God told Zerubbabel in Zechariah chapter 4, not by, not, not by might, nor by power, Right? Not, by human, not by human wisdom or ingenuity, not by what human, human strength, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Right? Well, we trust God to be the one who through His Word, by His Spirit, according to His power and His wisdom, 
gives the growth. Now, before we go on to the next section, there's one other point to take note of. And and I want to just draw your attention back to verses 16 and 17. Uh, Because right after Paul has warned the Corinthians about the danger of their spiritual immaturity and how it's going to lead to their ministry methodology, he then turns around and says this. He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, first of all, we need to note that the you here is plural. So when Paul says you are the temple, he's not talking about individual Corinthians, he's talking about the Corinthians collectively as a church. And secondly, note that this this use of the temple here is really just a continuation of the, the building metaphor. In fact, when Paul mentions the gold, silver, and the precious stones, he doesn't mean gemstones. He means those precious hewn stones. Remember like Solomon's temple. And then the gold in the temple and the silver. So so he's already been sort of talking about a temple. And now he's reminding them, okay, not only do you need to be cautious how you build on the foundation, but you need to remember the sacredness of the church. You are, you believers, you are the church of God. You are God's temple. And as holy as the temple was in the Old Testament, well, the church is that holy in the New Testament. And I think here Paul is shifting their attention to say, you know, not only think about how your spiritual immaturity may affect, you know, the the methodology and evangelism and discipleship, but be concerned about how your spiritual immaturity can affect the church because of the strife, and the jealousy, and the boasting, and the quarreling. And he's saying, be very careful that you not destroy the holy church of God. He says, because the one, if you destroy God's church, he will destroy you. It's a very stern warning. And it's a reminder that, that we need to be very careful you know, that, that, that we not allow you know, our sin to damage the church. I mean, what a, what a terrible thing if, if we become jealous and, and that leads us to then become a source of division in the church or, or, or we are just obstinate or, or selfish or whatever and, and that creates strife in the church of God. You know, the, the place where God has put His name. Paul is warning them so strongly to, to beware of that. And I think this is also a reminder to us, you know, as we think here about the, the call to grow as Christians, um, you know, maybe you're here and you think, well, I know I'm not growing as I ought, but you know, I'm just, I'm just happy to make it to heaven. I mean, I, I don't need those rewards. I'll just stay a spiritual infant my whole life and I'm just okay with that. Well, I think the, the problem, one problem with that, um, you know, as, as John Owen put it, you know, we have to be killing sin or it will be killing us. You know, you know, we, we, we really can't just coast and think, I'm just going to stay an infant. It'll be okay. I know I have this jealousy problem. I've got this strife, but you know, I'm, I'm just not going to worry about that. Well, the problem is that that problem is not just going to stay static. You know, that, that is a poison in your heart that, that's, that's only going to grow, that's only going to lead to worse and worse things unless by the Spirit of God you fight that and you say, I'm going to put this to death. You know, all of us will continue to have sin. It's, it's continuing to be a war, but we cannot just say, 
I'm going to roll over and just be content with sin. We have to fight it. As John Owen said, we must be killing sin or it will be killing us. And so all of that brings us now to the fourth and final point. What The, the remedy for the Corinthians' immaturity. What is it that could be the solution for this? We've seen the evidence of it. We've seen the roots of it. We've seen the fruit of it. And I hope this has stirred you to say, well, I, I want to grow. How do we do that? Look with me at verses 18 through 23. Paul says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness, and again the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. So, so what then is the remedy? Well, I think a way to sum up what Paul is saying in these verses, that the remedy for our immaturity is to repent of trusting in your own wisdom, to repent of boasting in men, and to learn to trust more fully in the all-wise, all-sovereign, all-gracious God. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in men and trust in this God who is altogether wise, altogether sovereign, and altogether gracious. Paul says in verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. In other words, the very things which seem wise and clever and powerful in the eyes of the world are nothing in the sight of God. And the very things which seem weak and foolish and contemptible in the eyes of the world are the means God blesses. God is a God who delights to take foolish men like Paul and use foolish means like preaching, and use a foolish message like Christ and Him crucified to save weak, foolish, and ignoble men and women like the Corinthians and like us. And God does it that way because it's all about His glory, not ours. And so you see, true spiritual wisdom and growth It's not about growing in self-confidence. It's not about figuring things out so that you can become self-reliant. It's about giving up on yourself and forsaking all confidence in your own wisdom so that you might more fully trust in God and His Word. It's about going from thinking you're wise to becoming a fool. It's about saying, as verse 21 says, I will no longer boast in men. But I will boast in the God who is wise, who is sovereign, and who has graciously given me all things in Christ. Listen again to verses 21 through 23. Paul says, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. I mean, think about it. The the Corinthians were there arguing over Paul and Apollos and Cephas. And they're totally oblivious to the fact that the sovereign God of all 
is graciously using all three of them to bless them as instruments from his hand for their good. I mean, they're just totally blind to, to the sovereign God blessing them through these very means. I mean, think about the way, I mean, and, and Paul continues, not only is God using Paul, Apollos, and Cephas as instruments to bless them, but, but Paul says all things are yours in Christ. You know, God who didn't spare his own son, but freely gave him for you. Well, he's given you all. He's given us all things in Christ. The world is ours. Right? Christ has died for us so that we might inherit the earth. That, that, that this might be our home forever. Uh, he says, life is ours. You know, Christ has come to give us eternal life. That we might live with him in the, in the fullness of life of, of knowing God himself. Death is ours. We think, well, that's the enemy. Well, but in another sense, I mean, Christ has so conquered death that, I mean, death is, is merely gain for the Christian, right? Paul can say, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Death has just become a doorway into the eternal presence of God, a, a, a doorway to say goodbye to all of the, the strife and burden and sin of this world. The present is ours. Right? As Romans 8 tells us, we know that God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. Right? The present belongs to us. God is sovereignly orchestrating things for our good. The future is ours. Right? God is planning all that is to come to bless His people in Christ. And Paul says, all are yours. And you are Christ. And Christ is God. I mean, that, that's the remedy. Take your eyes off of man. Take your eyes off of boasting over something as trivial as which preacher you think is better. And set your eyes on this God who is graciously, sovereignly, wisely working everything together, who's already given you everything in Christ. I mean, he's saying if, if, if that becomes your foundation, if that's what you see, are you going to be jealous? Because someone else seems to have a gift you don't have? Because someone else seems you know, ahead of you in some way? Or are, are, you, are you going to be having strife with one another? You know? Or will you not be grateful and joyful and glad? And finally, as, as we close, I, um, I also want to speak to you if you're here today. and um, you know, Maybe you hear this and, and you're not just spiritually immature, but you're altogether lost. Uh, you know, maybe you look at your life and um, all you really know is that I'm a great sinner and I'm not good enough. Well, friend, the answer for you is not to say, I, you know, you just need to try harder. You know, you just need to try to get your life together. Um, the fact is that we all fall short and we can't make ourselves good enough. Um, but God, as, as we just talked about, God freely gives the gift of salvation in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. Um, Salvation is a gift of God that we receive by repenting of trusting in ourselves, trusting in our own merits, trusting in our own works, and trusting instead in Christ. Friends, that's the beginning point. It's come to faith in Christ. And then we grow not by moving on from Christ, but by learning to trust Him more and more. And so friends, may we continue to, to grow up in faith in Christ. May God help us. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for your word. 
Thank you that you have saved us. and Thank you that you um, sovereignly work things together for our good. God, we pray that you would help us to grow, not to remain infants, but to mature in Christ. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.